I think if you want to do any kind of multitask learning, obviously you want a model that can generalize, but you also want a model that can fit within a reasonable capacity that the network has. You can fit all of the information that you care about. Yeah. And for that, I think predicting like different kind of reward functions for different tasks, you can much easier fit that using a model than predicting all the possible futures using like pixel prediction. Hey there, I'm your host, Kanjun, and we are Generally Intelligent an independent research lab developing AI agents that mirror the fundamentals of human-like intelligence and that can learn to safely solve problems in the real world. On our podcast, we interview researchers about their behind-the-scenes ideas, opinions, and intuitions that are hard to share in papers and talks. We hope you learn as much as we have in our quest to understand and build the mind. Nicholas Hansen is a PhD student at UC San Diego working with professors Xiaolong Wang and Hao Su. He's interested in how to get reinforcement learning agents to generalize and adapt flexibly to new environments, learn with little supervision, and learn continuously over their lifetimes. This summer, he's also a research intern at FAIR, working with Aravind Rajaswaran. Welcome to the podcast. We're really excited to have you. How did you originally get into research, and what were your initial interests, and how did they evolve over time? Yeah, so thank you so much for having me. I got interested in AI, as a lot of other people, I think, at a really young age. Where I was sort of curious of how computers worked and everything. I remember as a kid, I would play video games and I was not really competitive or anything, but I remember playing and sometimes you would play against like computers and you would see that they were not at the level of a human player, but they did something sensible. And mm. I think I was, I remember I was very curious because I did some like very basic programming back then, just like for loops, if statements and basic stuff. Mm. I just couldn't imagine the level of AIs that there would be in those games that you could program that just with your statements. Mm. So I think that's why I got interested in AI, like the concept of AI originally. But it wasn't until much later in college that I actually started learning computer science, learning machine learning, and getting an idea of how these things could be built. Once you entered college, did you know that you wanted to work on AI? Not at all, no. I didn't even know I wanted to go to college at first. I got interested in programming and I just, you know, like in math and logic and everything. And I just always, whenever there was a point in time in my life where I would need to pick where to do next, it just seemed like a natural choice to like continue doing that. Mm. So that's how I ended up in college. And that also sort of how I ended up doing AI and computer science. Interesting. And how did you decide to do a PhD? I just stumbled into research. When I came to college, I didn't even know research was a thing that you could be paid basically to learn and just tinkle with things. Mm-hmm. So I got into research when I started doing machine learning in college. And there was a guy that was like, hey, I'm doing some research here. Do you want to join? Mm-hmm. And I thought it sounded really interesting that I could do something that was not just coursework or like just hobby tinkering with stuff, but actually do research that would have some kind of impact. When you first started doing research, you know, I'm sure you worked on stuff that was not as interesting as what you're working on now. What were you interested in at first? And then how did that evolve? Well, initially, I think for a lot of people getting started in research, it's more like an opportunity that you meet a person that is doing research and like, hey, why don't you join our lab meetings and like see where this goes? That's really how I got into it. And they were doing things by medical research with machine learning. I had a little bit of background in machine learning and I thought this would be a good way to sort of explore research if that's something for me. Mm. And then when you started doing applied for PhD programs, like what did you want to work on? As I mentioned, originally I started out in biomedical research. Then I learned more and more machine learning and I've learned that there was sort of 
more the algorithmic perspective that was interesting more than the applications. And then I stumbled into reinforcement learning. And I should also mention that like when I was in college, it was already at a time where reinforcement learning and DQN and like these algorithms that would play like video games and stuff, they were coming out pretty fast and there were plenty high publicity. So I would see them and think like, I think reinforcement learning is really what I want to do if this general concept of AI is what I want to do. It's actually quite surprising because a lot of people, they think about self-supervised models when they think about working on AI or ML research and not everyone decides reinforcement learning is interesting or important. Did you think about, oh, you know, there's something important about reinforcement learning, that's why I want to do it? Or how did you get there? That is a very loaded question. Yeah, I think there's a lot of answers to that. I think for building AI, it's probably a mixture of a lot of signals. I don't think there's any one way that humans learn. Yes. Like some of it is purely genetic, something that would just seem to have at birth. Mm -hmm. Other things are more like exploratory, just self-play, figuring out how the world works. Mm -hmm. And some of it is very explicit supervision from imitating parents or even our parents uh, yeah. telling us what to do, for example. Mm -hmm. So I think really, I've always been more focused on the problem of AI, like how do we build things? Mm -hmm. And RL seems to be like a pretty big component in that framework. I see. So you're saying humans get some, at least some signal from reinforcement and like probably a lot of self-supervised and some imitation. I think so. I'm not a neuroscientist, but at least to me, that seems the plausible solution for how we can build something like that in AI. Mm -hmm. For your master's thesis, you did your thesis on generalization in visual RL. What were some of the research ideas that you were starting to develop at that time? And then how did they transition to where you are now during your PhD? It's actually a funny story. I was visiting Berkeley for a while. And when I was there, I was like just getting into RL and I felt like, hey, I want to go here. I want to do RL research. So that was my goal. Then I came to Berkeley and I started talking to like lots of different researchers in computer vision and in machine learning in general and RL and other topics. <laughs> and I remember I was meeting Ludwig Schmidt, who was at Berkeley at the time. I think he's a professor now at MIT. And he probably doesn't remember even that we met, but it has a pretty... It has had a big impact on my research direction, I think. Back then, he was doing research on generalization in computer vision models. And his group or his lab, they, they did one specific project where they took a bunch of models that were pre-trained on ImageNet, which was the standard way to do pre-training back then. Mm -hmm. And then they would go out and collect a new test set for ImageNet following the exact same procedure as the original ImageNet paper. And they would systematically evaluate all of these models that have been developed. And you know these were all the state-of-the-art methods that we had. And they would evaluate it on this new test set that was almost the same as the original test set. Yeah. And it turns out that across all of these models, most of them would do considerably worse on the new <laughs> test set than the original test set. So interesting. And I remember I was seeing that result and it just didn't make sense to me because I was not super familiar with generalization or like even the concept of robustness or adversarial samples or anything like that. Mm -hmm. so I was very curious of why that would be. And then... If you look at the RL research at the time and where people are more focused on the algorithmic, like how can we train a single agent that by interacting with this environment can solve this single task. Yeah. So it's really RL research at that time was more like, how do we train a single policy to solve a single task with very little randomization and just focusing on solving that task. Mm -hmm. And that was already a difficult problem back then. Mm -hmm. But if that is very difficult in a single environment with no randomization, then surely if computer vision models that are trained on ImageNet scale data, if they struggle with this simple generalization, then RL will also struggle with those things. 
Mm-hmm. I see. And so then what happened? I ended up doing RL research anyway, but now I think that's what got me interested in generalization in RL. And mm-hmm. one of the first things that I set out to do is like, how can we actually quantify the generalization of the algorithms that we have right now? So we took, it's, it's a bit of an extreme example, maybe, mm-hmm. but we took the DeepMind control suite, which was a common benchmark at the time and still pretty popular, mm-hmm. which was on image-based RL. Mm-hmm. So we took that benchmark and then we trained the state-of-the-art algorithms that you would have at the time on those tasks. And then we would go out and develop a new test set for DeepMind control. Mm. That was like small variations of it, like randomizing the colors of the objects or the background or the agent or adding textures or changing the lighting and so on, adding visual distractors. And then we would basically just test all these algorithms that were trained on this single environment with no visual randomization and then test it on this other test set. Mm-hmm. And it turns out they were all doing very, very poorly. <laughs> and that was maybe expected because it's basically just comparable to one example in ImageNet. You would have like one visual example of how the world looks. Mm-hmm. And then you would test it on a different environment and it just wouldn't work. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. And so then once you realize like all these algorithms are doing poorly, what did you want to do next? Yeah, so then I started doing a little bit of survey and I was, I was not the first one to do this kind of experiment. There were other people that were also realizing that, hey, these RL algorithms are overfitting very strongly to the environment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But there wasn't really any solution to that problem yet. Mm-hmm. But it seemed that one prominent way of like tackling this problem was domain randomization, mm-hmm. where basically if you have access to a simulator, you could randomize things in a simulation. There are some practical problems with that. So you can randomize, you can obviously randomizing the real world is difficult. Yes. There's, it's pretty limited how much you can actually randomize, both in terms of time and also just the practicality of it. And then also, I know domain randomization during training reduces sample efficiency, and sometimes the RL algorithm, like the training doesn't converge and causes all these other issues too. Yeah, it turns out that if you're just randomizing, even just colors in simulation, the problem of learning a policy that can now solve the same task in all of these environments also just becomes so much more difficult. Mm-hmm. Even if it's just colors. And if you add other kinds of randomization, it gets even harder. Mm-hmm. So it didn't seem like a scalable way to do this. Mm. And so is this what led to the one of the first author papers you had, policy adaptation during deployment? Yes, I think that was the first realization that clearly we cannot train on all environments that exist, mm-hmm. both because we cannot... Like in the difficulty of training these algorithms, but also just the practicality of defining all of the things that we want to be robust to. <laughs> totally useful. That turns out to be a challenge. And <laughs> there's another, <laughs> this is sort of a sidetrack again, but there's another yes. interesting work that I also saw at the time. It was, it was a paper by Den Hendricks, who was mm-hmm. also at Berkeley. Mm-hmm. And he was doing research in, also in generalization in computer vision, mm-hmm. basically studying when you the choice of data augmentation that you use, how does that affect the generalization of your model? And there was a very interesting result that was basically, if you add color augmentation, you will be robust to colors, but you will not be robust to changes of textures. You will not be robust to changing of the, like rotating the image, for example. Mm-hmm. And there was a, like a very extreme example in a paper where I think they would add something like Gaussian noise to the image mm-hmm. and then train a model on that. And then it would test on a different kind of noise. Mm. And that also would not generalize. Oh, no. So it, it just seemed hopeless to do this kind of data augmentation and randomization as the solution to generalization. <laughs> That's hilarious. Wow. It never occurred to me that Gaussian noise will not generalize to different types of noise. It was very surprising to me. But I think that's why I was sort of realizing, okay, we need to do 
it, I think it still plays an, like a very important role in generalization, but it can't be the only solution that doesn't seem to be scalable. You can imagine why Gaussian noise might not help in like rotations, for example, right? They're not quite really the same thing. Yeah, it does seem really hard to define ahead of time. And is it even really learning if we as machine learning engineers go program the 1500 different data augmentations in there from the robot things that need to be very possible? It seems like it's sort of a missing point, a little bit of like some of the promise of machine learning. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Shifting a lot of the effort away from designing handcrafted yeah. policies to designing handcrafted data sets. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Sneaking extra handcrafted stuff in there is not really where I want to go. <laughs> Right. <laughs> well, we can talk about policy adaptation during deployment if you want. I thought the paper was quite interesting. This idea that your goal is to adapt this pre-trained policy to new environments without getting any data from the target environment because you might not have any if you have a robot and also without access to reward signal. And, you know, you talked about how the previous work was mostly this domain randomization that has all these problems. How does policy adaptation, how did this algorithm work and how did you get the idea for it? As a concept, the problem was very, was this generalization that you cannot randomize on everything, but what if we just train a policy on a single environment? And then what can we do to make that policy generalize just a little bit better to new environments? I don't think we can expect the same kind of performance as if you train on randomized colors, you test on randomized colors, mm-hmm. but this would be at least a solution that doesn't require all of the engineering involved and sort of predicting where you will deploy your policy. That was the motivation. Mm-hmm. And so one of my collaborators on that paper, Yu Sun, he recently did a paper also in computer vision on generalization, where it was basically you would take this big ImageNet model, and then when you're given a single example at test time, he would do domain adaptation on just a single image. Mm-hmm. And then basically every time you had a new image that you needed to do inference on for ImageNet classification or some other task, you would basically fine tune the network on that single image. And that seems to work reasonably well. Of course, it's very expensive in terms of compute, but it was working well, uh, very well. <laughs> and so the motivation here was to take this idea into the world of RL. Because in RL, we, if you do images of classification, you have a thousand different classes. And you usually, they're not really correlated. Like the, the image that you see now is probably not correlated with the image that you will see next. Mm-hmm. But in RL, images at different time steps are very, very correlated with each other. Mm-hmm. So it's very reasonable that if the ball is in the top left corner at time t, then at time t plus one, it will probably still be around there. And if you're walking, like if you're doing navigation and you're walking into a room, the room is going to look pretty much the same at this time step and a few time steps into the future. So what we decided to do is we took this idea of doing self-supervised domain adaptation mm. on images, and we took that into RL. And we trained our policy as you would usually train it in a single environment. But then we would also learn an auxiliary self-supervised objective. Mm-hmm. It could be like a forward dynamics model, inverse dynamics model, contrastive learning, you name it. Mm-hmm. We think we decided to go with inverse dynamics model in the end, but really it's just about having an objective that doesn't require rewards or something that you would usually need for RL. Mm-hmm. But then after training this policy, we would put it into our test environment that the agent had never seen before, mm-hmm. then the question was, how can we adapt really fast to this new environment? And this was also, again, an extreme setting that you had one training environment, you had one test environment that was different, and you had never seen it before. And we were a crying agent to adapt within a single episode. Mm-hmm. 
So basically, if the agent made a mistake, it's just too bad. There would be no, no backtracking, no extra examples. I think that's great. Go ahead. Yeah. So it was, it was a very extreme setting, but I think it was a very interesting problem and see like, can we do anything in this setting? Because this seems to be the hardest setting that we could probably think of. It seems like the answer is yes. Like the performance is pretty good on a whole bunch of different settings I saw on your website. Yeah, so we tried it initially in simulation on this generalization benchmark that we designed with like different, different kind of distribution shifts. Mm-hmm. We trained on one environment that was like the standard environment and then we'd randomize the colors and then try to adapt to these randomized colors. Mm. What we did was actually just at each time step in the episode when we were testing the algorithm, we would just do gradient descent using the auxiliary objective on just a single example that we were seeing, like the observation that we received at, the, at a specific time step. Mm-hmm. And then in order to create a batch of examples from this single example, we would do data augmentation. So if you had an input image, you could crop it in different ways and it would look slightly different. And this will make that adaptation a lot more efficient. And it turns out that we could actually do this to generalize to at least colors and a little bit textures as well, mm-hmm. at least to some extent. And we also tried it on a real robot, actually, where we'd, it was a pretty fun project, actually. Mm-hmm. We would take an agent that was trained in simulation, and then we would do sim to real and we would, on purpose, not calibrate the camera. We would not really measure the dimensions of objects. We would not make sure that lightning was the same and everything. We would just see what happened and then try to adapt to these very realistic central settings. Mm-hmm. And that seems to be working quite well. So what we then did was to take it one step further and say, how can we randomize the real environment? Mm-hmm. It was sort of like an effort to do domain randomization in the test environment. So we would put different tablecloths on the table. We bought like disco lights that would like... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> they were like light up the room differently at different time steps and it was a really fun project mm-hmm. it turns out that we can adapt to this to some degree to some degree to the, even the, to the disco lights yes yes that's quite interesting <laughs> huh. but if people don't use that technique then you're safe for killer robots in the future right it's getting a disco ball basically <laughs> right yeah. right <laughs> 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 That's hilarious. (laughs) Okay, so let me just make sure I understand this correctly. You basically, during train time, added a self-supervised auxiliary objective and you picked inverse dynamics, but you could, you know, essentially use any objective. And then during test time, you were updating the self-supervised objective on a single example. Like every time you got a new example, you would update it and then you would do data augmentation to get a batch. Correct, yes. Okay. And you use that self-supervised model during test time somehow? Yes, yeah, so we then would take, we basically the network would share some of the encoder. So we would have like an encoder that took images as input, mm-hmm. and then there would be like a few layers of convolution. And then on top of that, we would have a task kit for the auxiliary task and one for the RL policy. Ah, so you're it improving the encoder using the self-supervised objective at test time, basically. Exactly. So we're fine-tuning the representation and not the policy itself. That makes sense. And it seems that when they're jointly trained at training time, this works reasonably well at test time as well. But of course, just doing gradient descent on your test images, you have some risk of catastrophic forgetting. Yeah. And that you might forget some of the things that you saw at training time. Right, right. Which also turned out to be a problem that like, if you take this policy trained at training time, you fine-tune it on a new test environment. If you change the test environment, or you even go back to the training environment, it would perform worse than it did initially. Mm, interesting. So you did see some catastrophic forgetting when you reversed the environment. Yes, definitely. 
Yeah, so basically what we were wanting to do was basically just overfit very strongly to the environment that we were in at that specific time point, which Mm -hmm. means that when you do this overfitting, you would forget certain other things, which is not a huge problem. You could just save the weights and you could like go back to your initialization always. But it's really just the idea of why would you remember everything if all you really care about is the environment that you're in? Mm-hmm. That's kind of interesting. Basically, what you're doing is this like forced fine tuning using the self supervised augmented batch. And then that retrains the encoder. And then now you're, it's interesting that just retraining the encoder and not changing the policy at all. So basically, like the policy generally works. You just need a better encoder. That's promising, actually. Yeah, I think so. And no, a lot of the environments that we were testing on were like mostly visual changes. We did have some small dynamics changes, but it was mostly visual. So I think from that perspective, it makes sense that it worked. Yeah. But we were usually, in most of our experiments, we're using an inverse dynamics model. Yeah. And because you're learning a dynamics model, you can potentially adapt to small changes in dynamics as well, at least the stuff that is actually encoded in the representation. Uh, did you try any changes to the dynamics? Yeah, we had a little bit. Like in the Sims Real example, mm. the dynamics was obviously different, but we were doing manipulation tasks that it doesn't affect the policy that much. Mm -hmm. We also had, in simulation, we had some experiments where we would artificially change the dynamics a little bit. Mm. And that still seemed to be not doing like optimally, but somewhere in between not adapting and optimally. That's actually quite interesting. Really, like, as I'm thinking about this problem, there are kind of like three components. You want to adapt the encoder to new environments sometimes, but in some certain types of environment changes, you probably want to adapt the policy. And then also you want to like remember how you perform in old, like you want to remember the encoder for old environments or something like that so that you can go back to old environments. And so like there are these three pieces and in theory, you should be able to do this to adapt to quite large environment changes, even if you change the dynamics and also the visual part of the test environment. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think that's correct. So the implication of that, like always going back to our initial point, is that you never really learn anything. Like you adapt to the new environments, but then you're sort of, you have a short memory and then you forget and you go back to it to where you started. Mm-hmm. There's no mechanism in this framework to sort of remember the new things that you're learning. There was no continual learning, so to speak. So I think that's still a, a piece that was missing to this framework, but mm-hmm. it, it seems pretty encouraging at least. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool. I guess that one of the reasons maybe for that is that at least from my memory, the tasks don't really require that, right? Like the tasks are all pretty simple and constrained. I think a lot of these like control tasks are like, just do the thing and that's it. And you're done. You don't need to like remember or go back and forth between different environments or have really long-term plans or anything like that. So I think, yeah. I wonder if there are any, like if you were to work on that, like what tasks would you want to use? Yeah, I think that's a good question. And it's like, it's a huge problem I feel in RL research. Okay. I feel like that's one of the major bottlenecks is the lack of data sets and benchmarks and environments where you can really explore all of these different directions of RL research, mm-hmm. especially when it comes to generalization. Mm-hmm. So we had to sort of take an existing benchmark and artificially change the simulation to, to look different, but yeah. it's, it's still pretty limited how much you, diversity you can get from that. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. What tasks would you want to use in order to explore continual learning in an environment like this? Did you think about how might you modify in order to be able to experiment with continual learning? There's kind of two ways to do generalization in RL in a research setting. And I think it boils down to which kind of problem you're interested in. There's like the more realistic settings where you have every possible kind of distribution shift that you can think of. You have vision, you have dynamics, you have changes in task, you have changes in supervision. 
all these different distribution shifts. Mm -hmm. The layout might change and you need to adapt to all these things. And then there's the other research setting, which is more like looking at it in a disentangled way or like separate ways that you're like, either you study visual generalization, you study generalization dynamics and so on, and then develop tools for dealing with these very specific problems. Mm -hmm. And I think both those directions are valid. And I think we need those, both of them. But uh, I'm also interested in seeing the benchmarks where you can do all of this research in the single benchmark. Yeah. I think that would be very exciting. Yeah. I think the only other question that I had as I was reading through this paper, well, I only got a chance to read this particular one briefly, but to make sure I understood it correctly, you are losing all of the like reward training signal, right? Like when you train this way, because there is no more reward during the test time, right? Yeah, we would basically make the assumption that you wouldn't have supervision at test time. This would be, you're just deploying your algorithm and then it's the responsibility of the algorithm to adapt to the new environment. <laughs> Although it has no idea what the, you know, if the task should, I guess in this the case, task was the same. Yeah. The task is the same. So it's hoping that it transfers over, but there were no gradients related to the task in the, the adaptation phase, basically, even though the task is the same. Right, right. And we actually, we tried also, and because you have shape rewards in this environment, so you could actually, you could provide a reward signal and intuitively that would be able to adapt as well using rewards. Mm -hmm. And we did actually do those experiments and try to compare, like, how many samples do you need with self-supervision versus how many do you need with rewards? Uh -huh. And it turns out, I don't recall the exact numbers, but it was something like 100 episodes or something if you do reward-based fine-tuning oh. versus self-supervision that was like one episode. Wow. Okay. Whoa. Interesting. It kind of makes sense just because the self-supervision, I guess, if you added reward and needed 100 episodes, you would add the reward and also do different types of augmentations? Yes, yeah, so we basically would just train it in the same way that it was trained using and doing training. So it would be like data augmentation and, and reward signal. Mm -hmm. But the amount of supervision you get from a reward signal, which is like a scalar versus right. the complexity of images and dynamics, if you're learning a dynamics yeah. model, it's just much greater in the case of self-supervision. Yeah, 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 it's like the Jan LeCun cake analogy. Or it's like, well, it's just the cherry. It's <laughs> a lot of cherries to make the whole cake. I mean, it's like a cherry pie. It's not really a cake anymore. You know? Right, right, right. I'm curious, did you experiment with, what if you learned multiple self-supervised models with different objectives? Because in theory, you could augment this with many models. They would all feed back into the encoder. I don't know if that helps. Maybe it makes it too complicated and now the encoder gets confused. Yeah, we actually, that's something we actually tried for a while and we were never able to get it working. Yeah. I think oh. in the original research, we tried a bunch of different models and we saw that it was pretty dependent on the task, which kind of self-supervision was more effective, Yeah, which I think makes sense. But like sometimes contrastive learning would do better. Sometimes yeah. dynamics would do better and sometimes like a third option. Yeah. <laughs> I see. So if you combine the two, I guess like there's something like the encoder doesn't know what information to encode or there's something like something non-general enough. Yeah. And I think that's one thing. And the other thing is also just that complexity of actually like in terms of wall time actually doing this it be uh -huh. becomes impractical and if you want to run something on a real robot there's a certain frequency that you need to interact with that makes sense that makes sense Th that was a constraint but then what we tried to do is was at least try to probe the model and figure out like which out of these five self-supervised objectives would be more effective for this task that we're solving mm. we're trying to find an automatic way to do this but we never really found a consistent solution it was very difficult Hmm. Interesting. So kind of after this paper, where did you go from here in terms of research interest? After this paper, I think we got some, some good results and we had some benchmarks that we could actually now evaluate the visual generalization. So the next thing 
we tried to do was whether we could use data augmentation as an alternative to domain randomization. <laughs> so say that instead of modifying the simulation, can we actually just modify the image itself? Which seems like much easier to do, especially if you want to do something on a real robot. So what we tried to do is in, in this benchmark with randomized colors and textures and so on, was to just add similar kinds of data augmentation during training. And that actually, it, it seems to be a lot easier to do than domain randomization because you can actually, you can randomize not per sample that you're collecting, but actually do it at training time. So when you're updating with a batch of samples, you can augment this batch differently each time. Mm, I see. That makes sense. And you found that that worked as well. We found that it worked, but again, it had the same issues, inherent issues that domain randomization has mm -hmm. in that it makes the optimization still more challenging with RL. Mm -hmm. And it also requires you to pick data augmentations that would help you to generalize to whatever test case you have. I see. When you use data augmentation instead of domain randomization, did you also use the same framework as in P PAD, where you have this auxiliary self-survives objective? So initially, we just tried to add data augmentation to your standard RL algorithm training pipeline. Okay. It seems to work quite well. And it doesn't have the overhead, like time overhead that auxiliary objectives has. That was nice, but it still had these optimization issues. So one of the solutions that we came up with is that what if you just design, again, you add a little bit of overhead, but then you add an auxiliary objective, you just use data augmentation in the auxiliary objective and not use data augmentation in a policy, and then just let them share some of the network. Again, the representation network. It was a very straightforward solution that if policy learning is uh, stable with data augmentation, you mm -hmm. just don't use data augmentation in the policy <laughs> learning. You just add another objective and which is supervised and supervised learning, we would know that works very well with data augmentation. Mm -hmm. So that was actually how our second paper, which was called SODA, soft data augmentation came to be. Got it. Got it. Interesting. So then after that, what did you decide? Talk about that one just a little bit also. I thought that one was sort of an interesting idea. Like, my summary, I, I think it was basically like augmentations are kind of useful for perception, but not really for the RL, right? So it's like, why don't we do those in the perceptual space and then do our RL in this other state-based space? But in a sense, like, doesn't this also apply to like the pixel space itself, right? Like we really want to be optimizing in the state space, not in the pixel space. And so I just was sort of wondering, like, if we're doing these data augmentations to like get out the state out of there are there other ways of like getting out state for this thing more effectively like that kind of seems like what we're trying to get at because since rl is so low signal effectively right like we want to have everything is distilled as much as possible and pixels deal like this really gross way of representing information so i just wonder do you compare to like how fast you can learn versus state how fast you can learn versus like the self-supervised data augmentation one like are they almost the same do our self-supervised things like just as good as having state information is there something new that's better than data information, et cetera? We didn't actually do that particular set of experiments at the time because there was already other researchers that were looking into sample efficiency and, and using data augmentation also as a way to get sample efficiency. There's a couple of papers on that. There's one another paper from Berkeley called RAD, which was reinforced learning with augmented data. There's also another paper from NYU, which was by, by Dennis Yaras, who was also doing this random image shift augmentation. Both groups actually found that this very simple, minimal data augmentation would improve sample efficiency by quite a lot and, and make it a lot more similar to sample efficiency that you know from state. <clears throat> but still, this improved the sample efficiency. It didn't really improve the, the generalization that much. 
It's really interesting. Yeah. So you can learn it, but the thing that you learn still doesn't generalize kind of as much as we want. Or like you've got the information you need, but maybe not in the right form, or maybe there's something else sort of still missing. Exactly. Exactly. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Yeah. So it seems that at the time, at least for the visual generalization, it seemed that data augmentation was a good solution and we just needed to figure out a way to incorporate that into the framework. Our initial idea was this soda paper where we would do this auxiliary objective and we would use data augmentation in the auxiliary objective. Mm -hmm. And for this particular paper, we just picked a, I think it was like BYOL kind of objective where it was like some kind of contrastive learning. And that seemed to be a sensible choice and it, it worked quite well. But the next question we were asking is then like, what kind of properties does this auxiliary objective actually need to have in order to, for this to be effective? So the most, in hindsight, is maybe obvious. Mm -hmm. But then what we just tried was that we just replaced this auxiliary objective with the same objective that we use in policy learning. So you basically have half of the batch would be unaugmented data and the other part of the batch would be augmented data. So that was one solution. So sort of instead of just training on augmented data, we would just split the data set and we would have like augmented data and non-augmented data. Mm -hmm. And that by itself made optimization a little bit easier. Mm -hmm. We were also working, we were working with TD learning based algorithms that would learn a value function. And in order to learn this value function, usually you're bootstrapping with a target Q function, mm -hmm. which is some kind of moving average of your learned Q function. And what people were doing at the time when using data augmentation and as you would just augment everything and then also including that the Q targets. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that if you add data augmentation and your network is not fully fitting the data, adding this data augmentation will increase the variance, which in turn increases the variance of the Q targets as well. Yeah. Right. I see. Interesting. So, and this makes it have convergence issues. I mean, you already have so much variance, like these things are super high variance anyway. You don't want more variance for no good reason. Exactly. Exactly. That was our motivation. And so what we basically did was that when we were training the network, we split the data set and just augment half of the data set. And then we wouldn't augment the Q targets either just to bring the variance down to reasonable levels again. Mm -hmm. And that meant that we can, without any auxiliary objectives, we could train our policy network, our value function on augmented data, pretty strong augmentation, and we could generalize very well to these visual randomizations that we have been benchmarking on for a while. For augmenting only half the data set, is like half pretty good or is it like... 75% is better or, or like 25% is better? Like how do you determine the data augmentation saturation point? We tried a little bit of different ratios. It doesn't seem to matter that much. You mm -hmm. just need to augment the data to be present and you don't want to overwhelm it, the network with only augmented data. That makes sense. Yeah. It feels like a lot of things with neural networks are like this. Like if you can cat some extra data or added some extra data, if you can cat some tiny little vector of some huge vector, it might not work out, right? But if it's like roughly the same size as the other one, it's probably fine. It doesn't matter if it's, you know, a third or two times as big, but it does matter if it's 10,000 times as big. So I guess that sort of makes sense that the end of documentation half and half seems fine. Yeah. It's like not, it's like sensitive only to order of magnitude. Yeah. Yeah. That's what it's saying. Yeah. It seems to be like that in a lot of cases. I remember also seeing in computer vision, again, domain adaptation works that were basically they would also deal with catastrophically forgetting when you take an ImageNet model, you fine tune on a new data set, but you still want to retain some of the things that you learned in the ImageNet data set or whatever mm. data set you were using. Mm. And mm. for that also, another very simple solution was just to add 
half of the original data and then like train half of the original data and train <laughs> half of the new data. And that seems to be, it's a very simple solution, but it just works so well in practice. <laughs> great. <laughs> that's great. I wonder how far you can stretch it, but that, that's interesting. I feel like a lot of research is like that, especially in RL. It's like very, a lot of times it's the small details that really matter in terms yeah. of the performance. Yeah, yeah. I feel like for us, at least, we see performance of our own networks kind of like a pile of hacks. The more hacks you pile up, the better the performance is, surprisingly. <laughs> so the small things really do matter a lot. That's what it is, yeah. <laughs> I, yeah I'm really much of an engineering person, so I, I love tinkering with all these small details. Yeah, I mean, that was one thing that actually stuck out for me as I read through a bunch of your papers in, in preparation for this today is it feels like there are a lot of these where like, oh yeah, that just seems right. Like that's just the right like way to get the details right for that. Like why would you want to add extra variance to the, the queue targets? Like there's just no reason to add that in there and it's already a really high variant. So yeah, that, that checks out. There's like a lot of places where if you like just think about it and they're like, huh. Yeah, but get the details right. Like surprise, it does make it somewhere between a little bit and a lot better. But with RL, sometimes it's kind of hard to measure too. So I guess I'm kind of curious when you are thinking about these different research ideas and measuring them, given that it's so noisy, how do you know like, oh, this actually worked or we broke something, et cetera? Yeah, it's really hard. And I think <laughs> so you can, of course, you can amortize it and you can just try a bunch of different Right. It sparks right. in different tasks. And I think that gives you a reasonable measure of performance. And then if you do generalization, you can have not just a handful of test environments, you can have a wide range of test environments. Mm -hmm. And if you do that in simulation, it's pretty straightforward. You can just randomize like a bunch of different colors to a bunch of different textures. Mm -hmm. I've also been working on real robots. And for that, it's a lot harder. Mm -hmm. When you do sim to real, how do you actually measure consistently which algorithm is better in a setting? Because mm -hmm. it seems that even within a single lab environment, if you train two models, it's very hard sometimes to say which model is better. Mm -hmm. And it just complicates <laughs> the message so much more if you change something in the environment or you like go to a different lab. And that's the same robot, same table. You set things up again and it just gives you completely different results. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. What are you doing in this situation? Yeah, it's just really hard. It's really hard. <laughs> I think it's a huge problem in robotics, at least like robot learning research, that it's so hard to reproduce other papers. And I don't think it's because people are not careful about describing all the details. I think it's just so hard to, to reproduce just mm -hmm. inherently. Yeah, yeah. Like it's so sensitive to very slight distributional shifts. Exactly, exactly. It really doesn't generalize. It's really interesting. Yeah, I mean, I guess the only answer that we have so far is what you said, which is just do it a bunch of times and see what happens, which is really annoying for robots. <laughs> Yeah, it takes so many hours to do real robot experiments. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. Why did you decide to work more on robots more recently? I think specifically robots, there's something satisfying about seeing your machine learning algorithm working on a real robot. And it's, it's physically there and it's doing the task that you, you didn't program it to do it, but at least that's what it learned by experience. And just seeing something work in a real world is pretty satisfying. Mm. That makes sense. It seems reasonable. It's, yeah, it's a good platform to study AI and study RL, I think. Mm -hmm. That too, when you were talking about realizing augmenting only half the data set was helpful and reduced variance in the Q functions, you ended up, I think, SVEA, stabilizing deep Q learning with confidence and vision transformers under data augmentation. Was that the paper that came out of wanting to figure out how to stabilize high variance Q targets? Yeah, exactly, exactly. I think there were two outcomes of that paper. So one of them is how do we actually use data augmentation for generalization? Yeah. with RL. Mm -hmm. And the other contribution was also 
we're just broadly studying different architectures. So this was at a time that vision transformers were very popular in computer vision mm -hmm. and people hadn't actually used those in RL. So we were wondering because they have a lot less inductive biases than CNNs. Okay. So I was curious whether the generalization in an RL setting would be the same for CNNs and for VITs. Mm. That seemed at least at the time, it seemed very useful before replacing all of our CNNs with VITs. Like okay. what are the trade-offs that we're making here? And so for that paper, we tried like the simple CNN based encoder that we were using in previously. And then we also tried this new VIT that was, we tried to make it, it's similar. So it was sort of like an apples to apples comparison. Mm -hmm. And it turned out it was a lot harder to optimize, but we got it working in the end. Yeah. But then when we tried to, after training it to convergence in the training environment, we had tested again on these randomized environments. Mm -hmm. And we saw consistently that CNNs would do something reasonable at least. It would get a little bit reward that was like worse than in the training environment was still sensible on average. Mm -hmm. While the VIT that we were training, it would just fail completely. It was basically mm -hmm. not solving anything. Mm -hmm. It was very surprising because we kept everything else similar. It just seems to be that the architecture is just overfitting so much more. And this is desirable in computer vision when you have huge data sets and you want to fit the data sets very well. In RL, if you have a single environment with no randomization, you want to limit the overfitting because otherwise it's not going to generalize to any other settings. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It, it's like VIT, because it does not have any inductive biases, like as you train it, it's basically gaining inductive bias, but it's gaining whatever bias your current data set has. And it's a lot of these large pre-trained transformer models these days, they use huge amounts of diverse data. Do you think that if you did some kind of like VIT pre-training on a large image data set that it would do a lot better and kind of get to something more reasonable? Yeah, so actually we tried something even simpler than that. We just tried to add our data augmentation to the VIT. Mm. And it seems that if you do apply data augmentation, you get pretty much the same test performance as with the CNNs. And oh. sometimes it was, sometimes was slightly better. Interesting. Mm. So it does seem to be a data issue mostly with these models. And yeah. so I think moving forward, if you want to use vision transformers and other big architectures with less inductive biases, if you want to use that in our context, I think we need to think carefully also about the data. Yeah, mm -hmm. that makes a lot of sense. There was a paper, I forgot what it was called, studying what VIT was learning and then comparing it to CNNs. And it seemed like, I don't know if I'm remembering this correctly, but I think in the early layers of VIT, once it's fully trained, it actually learns CNN convolutions. And then it learns some convolutions early on. And then in later layers, it learns some kind of like average pooling situation. So interesting that it kind of re like turns out CNNs are pretty useful or a good inductive bias, I guess, would be the conclusion there. Interesting. That's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I guess it turns out that the community has all along been doing very reasonable things. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> More general architectures is better. It is kind of interesting that it's not learning convolutions all the way. And so... There's something about like, okay, having some convolutions early on, but like later as your features get more, maybe higher level or something, you don't want convolutions anymore. That's interesting. Yeah, that seems to also be what, I think I'm not super familiar with the literature, but that seems to be what the community is converging towards. Instead of going straight to VIT from the input, you add a few convolution layers and then you add transformers on top of that. Mm -hmm. It seems to be more stable to train and also slightly better. It's probably for the same reasons, right? If convolutions are shown to be working very well in early layers, then you want that. And then you can add less inductive biases later on. That makes sense. That's really interesting. Huh? I didn't realize that that was what we were converging toward. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, this is sort of random, but I, do you know anyone ever does some transformer? Like, if you have your sort of layers, you know, going up like this, do you ever have like a mix of like, there's some convolutional and some transformer layers down here, but then the mix changes so we get more transformers that go up and fewer convolutional along? Oh, like, weird. I haven't seen anything like that. Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't know if that's. Because, well, because that way, like, if it was an inductive bias, then what you would maybe hope to have happen was like, the convolutional ones would learn in the beginning and then transformers would basically just be noise. So it's fine whenever it'll just noise things up. But then once it learns a little bit, then you can learn the delta over here instead. And like, now that you have something stable in your I don't know on RL, like, if you have enough, but I'm curious on the, like, just pure computer vision if that, because that sort of makes it easier. It's kind of back to the, like, if we had 50, 50, you know, augmented and regular data, like, it's so annoying to set this hyperparameter. If we have two convolutional layers or three or four or seven, like, ah, I don't know. Why don't you dump them all in there and see what happens? Yeah, I think it's interesting. I think it's interesting. I could see that happening in a lot of cases where like, if you're not particularly concerned about inference speed or anything like that, instead of having a single backbone, you could just have multiple backbones and then you could just like fuse them all together somehow. Yeah. Yeah. So then after you did all this key learning stabilization stuff, then what happened? Like, how did you end up going toward, I think one of your more recent papers, temporal difference learning for model predictive control? like branches out from that quite a lot. You combines this long horizon planning into the model. Like what happened? Yeah, it's a funny story. So I was actually still at the time working on generalization mm. and we had a particular problem setting that we were trying to work with and find a solution. So we were trying to do some adaptation where like you have this environment that would be self-resetting and you would have a policy that would just interact with the environment, collect data, and then slowly learn a model of the environment. And I was looking for an algorithm, like a backbone algorithm that I could use for this problem and just add my contributions on top of that. Mm. But the more I looked, it just seemed to not exist. <laughs> it was like, <laughs> we wanted to do this long horizon predictions and training a neural network to do hundreds of time steps of prediction is just very difficult. Mm. That didn't seem to be feasible, even in state space, let alone when you do image-based RL. Mm -hmm. And then there was the other alternative. There was something like Mu0 was out there. Mm -hmm. It was like not trying to do video prediction or anything like that. Just try to learn the reward function and then do this with this long horizon predictions using the value function. But again, this algorithm was based on MCTS, like Monte Carlo Tree Search, mm -hmm. which was for discrete action spaces. Mm -hmm. and it wasn't very straightforward to make that work in continuous action spaces. Mm -hmm. I'm aware that there are some tricks that you can do, like you can branch out the more actions that you're taking and sort of like build this discrete-ish continuous action space. But it, yeah, it didn't, it seems like a very complex solution. Actually, what we tried to do then instead is go back to scratch and ask, what is it that we really need to build here? And we wanted to build something. We knew it was not doing predictions in pixel space or image space because that was a difficult problem. Mm -hmm. So what else we could do? We could model the environment without doing this reconstruction. We would need a supervision from something. And so that's where new zero came into the picture and they were doing reward prediction. They were doing value prediction. So we tried to do that also in the continuous action space. Mm. But then instead of using MCTS, we decided to use model predictive control, which mm -hmm. is a common framework for continuous actions. Mm -hmm. So what we ended up really was an algorithm that would do planning in continuous action spaces, entirely in the latent space and without any video prediction or any kind of input prediction purely based on rewards and value functions. And it turned out that 
we could actually get reasonable planning even on in pretty long horizons because we could use the model for as long as it's computationally good to do so and also as long as it's, the model is reliable. Yeah. And then at some point, we can just bootstrap with the value function. And the value function is not going to be perfect, but it's probably a better measure than whatever rollouts we do in the infinite horizon using our model. Wait, let me make sure I understand exactly how it works. You are bootstrapping with the value function and using that to train the model and then using the model? Yeah, we're basically, we're learning a model of the environment. We're learning the model entirely from rewards and values. Mm -hmm. So we were basically at each time step, we would encode into a latent representation mm -hmm. at the first time step. And then at each time step, we would just predict rewards and value functions using sort values using TD learning. Mm -hmm. We do this at each time step, and then we just continue to roll out for X number of steps mm -hmm. in the latent space mm -hmm. without ever going back to pixel space. Mm -hmm. We're basically trying to learn a model of the rewards and then just backpropagate the reward predictions and the value predictions all the way through the model back to the encoder. Got it. So the entire model and representation was learned using rewards. Got it. Got it. Interesting. And you said that you were looking for something that did long horizon prediction in continuous action space and you couldn't find anything. Yeah, I didn't find any methods that were fitting uh, our needs specifically. So that's sort of why we started going into this and, and see if we could develop something like that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think people now have extended the zero to the more continuous case, but it's been very recent, so I don't think that there, yeah, I don't think there was a lot of really good stuff back then in the same exact sense. It seems like this model worked quite well on uh, dog, which I was very surprised by. Like nothing works on dog. Is that something you expected, or kind of did it take a lot of tweaking to get to a place where it worked in such a? I think dog is like thirty-eight dimensional or something, continuous action space. Did it take a lot of tweaking to get there, or did it just work off the bat? Yeah, so at the time, I think when DeepMind Control Suite came out mm -hmm. in 17, 18, something like that, the dog was actually not part of the yeah. benchmark at that time. There was yeah. something that was added later and it was added not too much before we started working on this. Mm -hmm. And so we, when we came at a point where we could solve humanoid, we was at the time the most difficult task. We were sort of just looking around with other tasks we could try to do. And then we stumbled upon the dog and thought it would be fun to at least try to see if we could make it work. Uh -huh. And I think the fact that it's such a high dimensional action space in continuous actions mm -hmm. has made it more interesting to work with. And it was actually surprisingly easy to get it working in that setting. I think we used more or less the same hyperparameters that we used for humanoid. Just no. let it run a lot longer. Ah, interesting. How much longer do you remember? I think like twice the, the number of time, something like that. Very reasonable. Wow. Yeah. So I think that the problem with, so we were doing planning also for interaction, which mm -hmm. means that it's something like model free RL where they're faster because they don't do planning. It's like just do system one reactionary mm -hmm. behaviors. Mm -hmm. If you do planning, you add a little bit more computational overhead. Mm -hmm. Running things for a very long time can be more challenging than with model free RL. Mm -hmm. And it turned out that at least for the dog test, we were not able to get model free RL to solve it at all. So. Mm -hmm. If that is the alternative, then sure, we can add a little bit more wall time. Yeah. How much more wall time does it take kind of per step than a model free algorithm? Yeah. So it depends basically how much planning you're willing to do. Mm. I think it's ultimately a trade-off. So you can, TDMPC actually also learns a policy mm -hmm. in an actor's critic fashion. And mm -hmm. we use the policy in our planning. But you could just, if you only care about speed, you can just use that policy and not do any planning at all. Mm -hmm. But that is consistently worse than doing planning in all of the tasks that we tried. Got it. 
But what you can do is you can add a little bit of planning on top of that. And the more planning you're willing to do, basically you always get better performance up to some ceiling. Got it. And let me try to understand the planning component of this model better. So for the planning component, it sounds like you're predicting in latent space future rollouts. And do you predict some fixed time stuff into the future or you change it over time or how exactly does it work? We decided to just stick with a fixed budget and just say we do, I think, six iterations and X number of samples per iteration mm-hmm. using MPPI for planning, which mm-hmm. is like a sample-based planner. Mm-hmm. And then that would just be the budget that we sticked with in almost all of the tasks that we did. Nice. Mm-hmm. And that was just to make our life easier, but also to just, it seemed that in our initial experiments, there was a very reasonable compromise. And I think if you tweak this for each task, you will probably get a little bit better performance than what we got. Mm-hmm. Right? We didn't really bother trying to change the hyperparameters for each task. I think that also again, ruins the purpose of why we want to build these kind of algorithms. Yeah, so it seems fairly robust to your planning hyperparameters. I think it starts of planning, yes. So, so one thing that we did have to tweak was that now when you do like humanoid tasks or do dog tasks, you do need to add more planning in order to solve those tasks uh, right. efficiently. Mm-hmm. So for that, I think for humanoid, for example, I think we doubled the number of iterations Got it. from like six to 12, and that adds 2x the wall time. <laughs> I see. But in terms of in terms of samples, it was still a lot better than if you just use model uh, model free URL. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I do remember seeing that the hyperparameters were the same. I think you also compared against like Dreamer and things that work for pixels, right? In that paper, I was really curious if you had done any experiments to see if you do tune the hyperparameters, how much closer do they get to? Because Dreamer is definitely tuned, so. They're highly tuned and they're using different hyperparameters. It probably really matters. So I was really curious to know, but I guess you guys didn't run those experiments to see like what happens if you try forever to find exactly the right hyperparameters to make the thing work. Yeah, we, we basically just looked at what other people were, were using in image-based RL and then we just tried to stay close to those hyperparameters and not really tweak it too much. But yeah. I think if you tweak it, you're going you're gonna to always squeeze out a lot more performance. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I'm also sort of curious about this like, whether it's MCTS or this model predictive control or these ways of planning into the future. Like one thing I've been thinking about a lot and struggling with is like, as people, I definitely don't have like this rollout of like my fingers here. And then I move this muscle a little bit, a little bit, a little bit, like I'm not adding at the super fine, low level action granularity. Yeah. I don't really know how to record, but I certainly do anticipate things that happen in the future. So I guess I'm wondering, like, how do you see bridging that kind of gap? Here, I guess it doesn't really matter because it's really predicting six steps in the future, which is, you know, not very far in the future. But do you have any sort of thoughts about what to do for those much? Because, you know, originally it came to this from like, oh, can we do like much longer time horizon planning, like 100 steps? You're going to do 100 steps or 1,000 steps. You really don't want to be doing this at like the fine motor control level of action. Yeah, I think in a lot of cases, like doing very accurate predictions of the future is, I think it's a very rich supervisory signal. And I think that's maybe also why it's a little bit controversial if I say that we don't need that and we can just predict rewards. Whereas yeah. losing, like it's a scalar, you're losing so much information by doing that instead of doing pixel prediction. Uh-huh. But when you think about it, it's, it's, it's such a easy problem compared to pixel prediction. Uh-huh. Like, there's no way that humans would able to tell what you're looking at like five, 10 seconds into the future if you're walking. Mm-hmm. But if you're predicting just if you're falling or not, I think that's a lot easier. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I really liked that part of it. It seemed like a great simplification of it. Because yeah, one of the other problems with especially some of these like video prediction things, et cetera, I mean, the future is just fundamentally unknowable to like make up things. You always get into this like weird thing of like, 
Well, you can either make up details to make it look right, but then you're definitely wrong. Or you can make up no details and it's really blurry and you have no idea, but then you're also definitely wrong. So if you're doomed either way, I think this is a nice way to kind of skirt that problem. Yeah, it's an interesting problem because I don't think anybody knows the answer. Like, what is the right way to do it? I, I think if you're doing pre-training and you have lots of data and you can train a model, I think you at least, it might not be accurate, but it would be a good initialization probably for doing other kinds of fine-tuning. Whereas I think the reward-based model is probably more like if you have limited data and you just want to build a model that is very accurate in this one task, mm-hmm. that seems to be a very good solution. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe you could have something in between. Maybe you could have something that predicts only specific things about the future that are themselves useful for predicting the reward. Because that's really what I care about. If I think about going to the store, it's like, oh yeah, like I have enough money to buy the thing. Yep. Okay, great. Right. Like I just need to check one or two bits about the future, not what color is the sign going to be. Right, right. And I, I think another aspect of also is if you want to do any kind of learn a model of the world that is like not for a specific task and you want, I think, I think that's what most of the, the community is doing right now is the promise of model-based RL is to train a model on all kinds of tasks and it can solve new tasks like zero shot with a little bit of fine tuning and it just knows how the world works. <laughs> that's not really the reality of what people are doing. People are training a model still from scratch on a single task, solving you might do it from pixels or anything, and the complexity of the task might be getting hotter, but you're still solving one task, but using yeah. a model. Yeah. And I think if you want to do any kind of multitask learning, obviously you want a model that can generalize, but you also want a model that can fit within a reasonable like capacity that the network has. You can fit all of the information that you care about. Yeah. Okay. And for that, I think predicting like different kind of reward functions for different tasks, you can much easier fit that using a model than predicting all the possible futures using like pixel prediction in that case. <laughs> but of course, a valid concern then is if you're learning reward functions, will it actually generalize to new tasks? Yeah. And I guess that starts to depend on the diversity of the reward functions that you use for your training. If it's a similar sort of reward, maybe. But if it's a crazy different reward, yeah, maybe not. I guess in theory, like a lot of these planning models, they predict in latent space instead of in pixel space, I think. And like the most recent dreamer i guess i wonder like what is the real difference between predicting a reward function for a task versus predicting in latent space in theory josh to your example of getting milk at the grocery store if you're predicting in latent space then maybe milk is like some part of your latent space and you should be able to know that you need well in dreamer at least you're using those latents for reconstruction as well it's a part of your loss function oh, right, true. so there's a reason to put a lot of extra junk in there that you really didn't need just for the rewards yeah i see and so if we have latent like yeah non-reconstruction latents so if you're not you can do non-reconstruction but then it's self-supervised in a different way where you're like either that's still like you're like if you're putting pressure on it to include a bunch of extra information so that they can like game this one metric that's right. kind of what you're but like, which metric do you want to gain? The like prediction about things about the future or your reward or whatever. Like, you want like a sort of balanced version that predicts just the stuff that you're going to need and nothing more, but nothing less. <laughs> uh, yeah, I should mention also, I think Dreamer is an excellent algorithm also, and I have a lot of respect for Danager, the, the lead order of this. But I think it's again a fundamental question of like, do you need to model everything or do you just model the things that you care about? Right. And yeah. I think coming back to generalization, I think if you know, the kind of different tasks that you want to do, then maybe something like just modeling the reward functions or capturing parts of the environment, that seems like a reasonable choice. Right. If you just put an algorithm, like a, an algorithm or policy out in the world and you just collect a bunch of data using that policy, now you want to use that model to solve a new task in the same environment, but you had no idea that you wanted to solve this task. 
then maybe learning everything is a better solution if mm-hmm. you can actually fit that into a neural network. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you probably want some combination of the two for something that's actually a general agent. Like you want something that learns from the environment. Uh, it makes me think of something kind of like your auxiliary subsidized representation where like, unfortunately, I guess like it's slower. But you could do some representation learning from the self-supervision and some representation learning from the policy itself. And then now you can predict in latent space, like future representations that might be learned. And then you would get a combination of the two. You're like getting some stuff from the, I guess you're, yeah, I guess you're not very directly getting information from the ward versus predicting the ward directly. Yeah, but I think it's an interesting direction. I would be very interested in seeing people playing around more with like these hybrid algorithms and trying to build something in between. I yeah. think that's very valuable. Have yeah. you experimented with anything like this? Not yet, but I think it's something that is very interesting. And I feel like I'm pretty interested in general. I haven't done any research in that really, but in general in policy reuse. Mm-hmm. That I think generalization is one way to do that. Like you learn a policy and now you want to use it in very similar environments. How can you generalize zero shot? How can you do a little bit of fine tuning to work well? Mm-hmm. But I could also see policy reuse in like much broader context that if you're training a policy to do one task and you want to solve a new task, for example, can you just use that policy as initialization and just fine tune? Mm-hmm. Or do you want to use a random policy initially? And I think in some, in some cases it will probably fail dramatically. And in some cases it will be actually useful. I haven't seen a lot of research in trying to figure out like what are the conditions where this would actually make sense. How do you do it in practice and which components do you want to fine tune and which ones do you keep fixed? Right. And how do you figure out which components to fine tune versus keep fixed? Like that's a really big hyperparameter sweep. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> do you have intuitions on when it would be useful in, or in what situations it would be useful? Well, I think first of all, the, the reason that like the way that people train RL usually is that you just do a bunch of random exploration initially. And so I feel like for overcoming that, if you have some kind of behavioral prior of like which actions make sense, I think that would be a good initialization for your policy. Mm-hmm. And in some cases, that may not make sense at all if the environments are very different. But if you're doing like robot learning, for example, there's a finite number of robots that we are using in our research. Mm-hmm. And you could just have one really good policy for each of those robots. Mm-hmm. And then every time you do a new paper on the specific robot that you're using, you just take one of these pre-trained policies and you use that to collect data initially. Mm-hmm. Then once you have data, you can start fine-tuning with rewards or with something else, self-survised, whatever, to solve the task that you actually care about. Yeah, that makes sense. One thing we've been experimenting with internally is data-dependent initialization. And we find it's actually quite interesting. It really does help with the early learning steps and it learns that much faster. But ultimate performance doesn't improve. It flatlines around the same place. Which is to be expected. Yeah, I guess a lot of it is just finding out how to learn with very little data for the actual task that you're using. Yeah, exactly. It seems if you have a single robot and you could just, over time, collect for all the experiments that you're doing anyway, you just store all that data and you just use all of that data to like bootstrap your new policy. That seems at least a sensible choice. Mm-hmm. But of course, in a research setting, that also makes it harder to figure out what are the actual contributions mm-hmm. to the performance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. I think there's maybe another method of policy reuse there also, which is like thinking about policies as skills or how to compose them or using them as like more components of something else. Like if for the robot example, it's not that every single researcher should need to teach the robot how to like stand up or flip itself over or walk somewhere. We want to like move on to other problems, right? Ideally you could be like, okay, here's your policy for that. Now it's too discreet to have 
that notion. But I think it's interesting to think about how can you make those sort of flexible, like, like people also, like we have a lot of priors like built into our structure of ourselves, right? About how to walk and grab things and everything. Like I don't grab things like this with the backs of my hands. It's so awkward. Like we have a reflex like helps you, you know, move your whole hand. And how can we sort of make it really easy to learn some of these basic things so that we can then move on to learning more complicated combinations of those things in a sense. Yeah, humans are actually interesting in this way because we do policy memorization. It's what muscle memory is. Muscle memory is like memorization of a policy. And then that allows us to do reuse pretty well. It seems like we also do something, I mean, the non, non-sensory motor areas of our brain work differently. The firing is more sparse. We don't have the same kind of like muscle memory reflex learning in different areas. But we do have a kind of memorization. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so just to continue on that. If you think of policies as muscle memory and you think of planning as sort of like more high level interactions mm-hmm. and planning is non-parametric, you just need a model of the world and then you can plan for whatever task you want mm-hmm. to solve. But it seems maybe not straightforward, but it seems like an interesting avenue of research to like, how can we figure out when do we want to do planning and how can we incorporate, if you just had a catalog of different skills that you have memorized, like how can yeah. you piece them together or like execute part of the skill and Mm-hmm. Yeah. Small new tasks very fast. Yeah, and to me, it's really interesting too because it's not just that we do like exactly the same motion, right? We have this like adaptation that happens as well. So it's not just this like like walking, right? It's like a great example where you know you make sure you don't like step in the hole, you walk around and bang, like, but you're not really thinking about it. You are sort of executing this thing. So I think, yeah, how do you sort of both memorize them and still have them be flexible? And like how do you plan in that space? I think is really interesting question. Yeah, like I can play on a different piano. It's a song, but it's a different piano. <laughs> Interesting. What do you feel like are some of the big open questions right now to you? Going back to the policy reuse, I think that is something that I feel is very interesting and I don't see a lot of people working on. Mm-hmm. That's something that I would be interested in. And I, I think that's something that computer vision people do very well. Yeah. They're very good at every time they train a new model, they open source it and give a list of steps you need to do in order to use this model for your own research. And people actually seem to be doing it. They take these off the shelf classifiers and representation networks and like state estimation stuff and all these different kinds of models and piece them together and add their little contribution on top of it. And I think that makes the field progress a lot faster. And on RL research, I think it's not as common to release your policies, for example. Mm-hmm. And I don't think people take pre-trained policies and add stuff on top of that. Mm-hmm. And that means, again, as you mentioned already, that every time we want to solve a new problem, we go back to sort of to scratch to like train our own policy. Yeah. And that seems to be limiting in what we can do. If all we ever do is like train policies to do reaching and picking up objects, we're never going to get to like the next level of research. Yeah, that's totally true. I think something that is interesting, you know, initially I would have said, oh, well, maybe people don't release their policies because pre-trained policies don't work very well. But there is something interesting in your work that we talked about earlier, where you're training the self-supervised auxiliary network and the policy network together, and you're just improving the encoder during test time, and you're using the same policy, it seems to work fine. So I think maybe there is actually an argument for like actually reusing the same policy would be fine. Yeah, and I think if the models... I mean, I also haven't released a lot of models myself, so maybe I'm also part of, part of guilty of that. <laughs> part of the problem. <laughs> but if people were releasing all of their policies and open sourcing them, who knows what people could use them for? I could see that maybe for behavioral priors, maybe you don't need to train a policy on a lot of data. Maybe you can just take a, like a population of existing 
models that can do all kinds of things on your robot and you could just use them as like an ensemble or something to use to solve a new task. But I think if the models are not there, it's very difficult to do this research mm-hmm. because you're not as a PhD student or something, you're not going to train thousands of models just to test this <laughs> hypothesis. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, why do you think people don't release their policies in RL? Yeah, it's a good question. Maybe people don't see the value in it. I think a lot of people, and people maybe do it more, and they release all the numbers usually. You can plot their results and everything and use it in your research. Yeah. I think the policies itself, people don't see the, as much value maybe. Mm. Like if you're doing a standard benchmark, it's like you can just spend a couple of hours, run the experiment yourself and then wait for a few days, and now you have the policies yourself. Yeah, yeah. But it, it, it sort of limits what you can, you need to train all of this from scratch every time you want to do research with these benchmarks. It could also be like a model-based versus model-free thing. Like for so long, we were in a model-free regime and it was super cheap to train policies and now it's not super cheap anymore. And like, maybe we actually should be releasing our policies now that it's more expensive to train them. Yeah, I think so. And also, I think especially moving from state-based agents to to pixel agents, it's even now, I think model-free RL and a lot of benchmarks, it usually takes at least half a day, one day, two days, sometimes depending on the task. Which is fine if you just want to solve a single task. But if you want to run hundreds of tasks, it adds up very quickly. Mm-hmm. Seems like one of the biggest reasons is just that the policy really depends on the model, both in like the world model and also the like neural network model, like the actual structure of it, like the inputs to the thing that generates the policy really often tied to like the task or the model or whatever. And we don't expect them to generalize super well from Iwidoi to Dog, for example. The inputs don't even line up, like, well, even would be the network and the shape and you're going to change it for your thing and like, and the loss term, like, and it feels sort of hard unless you have like, oh yeah, we all use a thing of this particular shape with these inputs on this problem. Like maybe then it can be more reused. Mm-hmm. So maybe the robotics one, like maybe in more specific domains, I could see that being helpful just for this quadruped. There, you know, what your appropriate set of inputs are, maybe even sometimes what your if it's our like a vision sets, and you might have like more common like vision or action architectures, so maybe it's easier to share things there than in some other settings. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if that one. does that seem roughly mm-hmm. right. Yeah, I think that's the right intuition. I guess there has been some progress in that, and that now people are doing at least things from pixels. Mm-hmm. So images would generalize across embodiments or different tasks, at least mm-hmm. in terms of shape. And then there's you still have generalization issues, of course, but who knows what you can do if you have a population of models? Maybe it still makes something. That is sensible. Mm-hmm. In terms of action spaces, I guess that one is tricky. If you do manipulation, for example, and you have a bunch of policies for at least one specific robot, you could reuse within that robot. And it might not work on other robots, but at least for that robot, you will now have a population of policies. Well, aside from policy reuse, are there other questions you feel like are important? Yeah, I, I guess also reusing other things. Like, <laughs> I think there's a lot of work already. I'm not really too familiar with the literature, but mm-hmm. using foundation models from language and from vision, try to use that in RL. Okay. Also, again, to not start from scratch, now we can take things from other fields and reuse that to, to solve our own problems faster. Okay. And I think that ties into the same kind of philosophy. Yeah. Are you thinking about playing around with them or have you already? I haven't had the time to really play around with them in an RL context, but that's something I would be very interested in. I think both bringing in pre-trained models from other fields, but also maybe what can we do with all the data? Mm-hmm. And so a while ago, we did try to use external data sets to do generalization in RL, but basically like using these external data sets as data augmentation, for example, mm-hmm. or you can, I've also seen works now with pre-trained representations where basically you train a network on an external data set, which already has a lot of visual variations. 
Mm-hmm. And then you would just use that as your backbone for your RL policy, which is also very reasonable because then you don't really need data augmentation because you're already trained on the visual representation, at least on a lot of different data. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. Exactly. It's interesting. I'd be curious to combine like a pre-trained encoder that's pre-trained on a whole bunch of different visual data with your like auxiliary self-supervised plus policy network. I would expect it to perform a lot better especially now you can focus your self-supervised network on inverse dynamics or things that are not visual. Yeah, I think that would be interesting. And I, uh, yeah, another direction for that is also how can we actually leverage these tools in a model-based setting? If you have a model of the environment, you can actually start doing data augmentation, not just in observations, but also in the action space or in the dynamics of itself. Mm. If you have a good model, you can actually, if it's good, you can simulate different physics, for example. Mm. And that might be a way to train policies that are robust to like, these small perturbations in the physics. When you are working with real-world robots, do you find that there is a lot of difference in the physics? Because I guess we think the real world has similar physics, but I guess the way that the physics is learned, maybe it's not. My research philosophy is try not to get too hung up in the details. And I know that my real robot is not the same as the simulation. And I'm not pretending that it is, and I'm not putting in the effort to make my simulator look more like the real world. Mm-hmm. I try to tackle it more from an algorithmic perspective, like how can we build algorithms that will still perform reasonably well if mm-hmm. we don't make all of these assumptions or like engineering. That makes sense. Something like even something as simple as camera calibration. I feel like it doesn't take that long time to do in the real robot, but it's just like an ex- it's an extra step. And ideally, we just have an algorithm that if the camera is reasonably similar in simulation and real, then you could just use it out of the box. You don't need to do any fine tuning or like calibration. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You just want to be able to deal with it. Yeah. That makes yeah. Sense. What do you feel like are some controversial opinions that you have that other people maybe don't agree with? I think that would still be what kind of supervision we need to learn a model. Mm. Like, do we want to use pixels or input prediction or like modeling in the input space? Or can we just use the very simple source of supervision like rewards, for example, which throws away a ton of information, but zeroes in on the things that we really, really care about when we're learning this model. Mm. And so the controversy would be like other people think that you need pixels or modeling and input space for supervision and you think maybe rewards is enough. Yeah, I think so. I think so. At least it seems, sometimes it seems crazy to just throw away all this information and because there's been a lot of progress in self-supervision and stuff in computer vision and language. And it seems that we, if you're just doing reward modeling, we're throwing all of that extra supervision and progress away. I think it's not mutually exclusive, but I think there, there's some controversy there. If somebody were to argue, if you were to steel man the other side, so make the best argument for what the other people would say in response to your reward is all you need, what, what would that argument be? Generalization is the biggest concern. If you train a model to be predicting rewards for a small number of tasks or even just one task, like how on earth is this going to work in a different task? And maybe it's the same environment, but a completely different task that doesn't share any properties with the task. Mm-hmm. If you're doing video prediction, this would be pretty trivial. You would at least be able to like know how the world works and everything. And mm-hmm. it's not clear if this is true for reward-based models. Mm-hmm. It seems there there's some truth to that. Like if the tasks are very similar, it does seem to work in our experiments. But it's kind of blurry when it works and when it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. And so given that you're all about generalization, like how do you deal with this? Do you think that it's, that's, this can be overcome or do you think that that's like an inherent issue in reward modeling? Yeah, I tend to, again, take the very 
simplistic views. And I think of this generalization as a data issue. Yeah. That if you just have enough data from a lot of different tasks, then just purely reward-based learning will give you a representation that is good enough for the vast majority of the tasks you want to solve. Yeah. And it also doesn't seem that other algorithms at the, this time, at least, are generalizing to other environments and not a task. So if they're not, I think it's fair that our model is also not. But, it's, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, who knows what happens in the future. That makes sense. Any other controversial opinions that you want to share? I don't know. <laughs> Thoughts on Simtereal? In that you've done some work in sort of Simtereal. I think there are some people that are like, oh, Simtereal, the real world is too complicated. We have to train in the real world. And other people are like, oh, simulators are great. We can use all this data. Where do you fall? Sort of the spectrum from Simtereal being terrible to great. There are two camps right now. There's like, we just care about the real world. We just train in the real world as well. And I think that's reasonable, but we don't really have big data sets. Again, every time you train something in the real world, it needs to start from scratch. Yeah. And you can do that reasonably effective now. I think there, there's been a few papers recently that show that you can actually do this in a few hours. But again, it would mean that you're starting sort of from scratch every time you have a new task. Mm -hmm. Whereas in simulation, you can generate a bunch of data, but it might not be accurate model of the real world. So it's unclear, I think, like, do you want to just purely do things in simulation and then hope that it transfers? Or do you want to train in the real world and be limited by data? Mm -hmm. And... I think it's very hard as a PhD student to generate data at this scale that you could actually train things in the real world. But hopefully someone else out there with more money and, and a bigger team of engineering that can actually work full-time on this, they could build big curated data sets of real-world interactions. Mm -hmm. So you somewhere in the middle then, maybe? I think so. I think right now, I'm, I think both are interesting. I think we might want to do something that's in between, yeah. Like, how can we start out with simulation and then collect real data and then either like adapt using that data or, or merge the knowledge between simulation and real? <laughs> yes. So we've done some work and we tried to do basically just zero-shot generalization from sim to real. <laughs> and I think it's an interesting problem to solve because it's kind of realistic setting. But it always seems like even sim to sim is pretty difficult. I know <laughs> the lab that I'm part of at UC San Diego, they developed a simulator called Sapien and a benchmark called ManySkill. Okay. And it's basically robotics benchmarks where you have visual sensors, you have complex robots like multi-hand need to do very complex manipulation. Mm -hmm. And they collected a bunch of like, they use Partnet, I think, as the data set. So you have thousands of different objects and like cabinets and drawers that you need to open and close. Mm -hmm. And there's, it just it turns out that even in this case, if you have hundreds of different drawers and you train a robot to open all of these different drawers, then you give it a new drawer that is not part of the original hundred and it just doesn't work. <laughs> no! no! <laughs> <laughs> so another way to keep yourself from future robots, like a custom made door handle. <laughs> <laughs> I think, yeah, so I feel like what we are right now is just so far away from these home robots that will be able to do things in our house and adapt and everything. It's just yeah. seems so far away. <laughs> yeah. In my mind, actually, there's a sensor problem. Like humans have really good sensors. We have so many good sensors on our, like our hands are perfect, are like awesome sensors. That's why we can use them so well. But for robotics, even the like pressure sensors we have right now is super low resolution. And so we have to do everything from vision. And so it's kind of like using our hands while they're numb which I've tried to do, and it's really hard to do. Maybe it's really hard for me to do because... No, it's hard. <laughs> well, maybe it's hard because I'm accustomed to, like, all my wiring is, like, no. using sensors, but I really don't know how to use my hand when it's numb. <laughs> I, 
I hurt my thumb a year ago and I don't have a lot of sensation in the left thumb very much. And it actually, like, I still have to look at stuff to do it. So not that you just get used to it. Right. Like, I do kind of do it, but it is a meaningful difference. But maybe if you were one year old and you had better neuroplasticity, then you would like learn better how to do it from vision. And then the nerve will be healed, but. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, yeah, it's an interesting question, actually. Yeah, a lot of research is limiting themselves to like one or two sensors. Like we do image based RL, we have like a very small resolution RTP image, or we do state based stuff and you don't have the image input. And mm-hmm. I think a lot of people are not even considering tactile information just because yeah. maybe from a hardware perspective, it's difficult. Yeah. It seems like in terms of like world model learning, having more sensors, more sources of information, that might even get you a, a very reasonable model just by incorporating all the different sensors that we have available. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that does seem right. It's interesting. There was one other paper you had where you didn't uh, add. Uh, it, it seemed like just depth to appropriate stuff to data for one of those robots. And then, oh, look, it can walk better. That's what it made sense. I was really surprised that other people had not already done that. <laughs> it seemed like a very, well, it was a good idea. <laughs> You definitely want to know where the stuff is so you don't run into it. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. I actually, I'm very impressed by all the research in, in locomotion robots recently. It's, I think it's, we're getting at a point now where both the robots are getting cheaper. It's something that the people in the lab can actually afford. But it's also it's just getting very easy, I think, to actually get things running on these robots. And yeah. with RL, it's, it's actually working pretty well. And it takes maybe maybe a PhD student like uh, three months or something to get something running on a robot, which I think mm-hmm. is very impressive. Mm-hmm. But still, a lot of the RL policies are sort of focusing on how can we do sim to real and overcome these generalization gap in dynamics mostly, because everything is trained from robot state information, and it doesn't really account for the vision of what's around the robot. Mm-hmm. Just focused on how can we get this robot trained in simulation to actually walk in the real world and be robust to all the kinds of diversity that we have in the real world. Obviously, you want a robot that can, if it can work on flat ground, it can also work in grass, it can also work on all kinds of other rocky terrain or whatever. But still, it seems like when people walk around, like it try to walk with your eyes closed, it's very difficult. Mm-hmm. Especially if <laughs> even on flat ground, but also if you're walking upstairs or something like that, you want to use your vision. <laughs> yes. And so adding depth, was that like you saw other papers adding depth and you're like, this seemed to work well, or how did that come about? So I think actually we started out with RGB because I think that's uh-huh. that's how humans do it. But it turns out that if you just add RGB and you have like color images, then you're dealing with all the complexity again in division generalization. Mm-hmm. And you can do data augmentation and, and other tricks to overcome that. But the easiest solution would just use dev cameras. Yeah. That seems to have, at least in a, in a locomotion setting, that seems to have all the information that you need without all of the extra diversity that you get from RGB sensors. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Also, humans do get binocular depth. Like, yeah, that's true. Yes, binocular <laughs> <laughs> depth. Like, we, we have a lot of actual depth cues. I guess yeah, so. there are at least like three. I'm just testing out my monocular depth right now. It might mean that we just don't have enough perception tools to actually make it work with RGB. Yeah. Maybe we just need more data. It's kind of unclear, but, but at least. Dev sensors are very easy solutions to that. Right. Yeah. Tesla believes that you can just use RGB. <laughs> <laughs> and I think self-supervised depth from RGB, even when monocular video has gone a long way, it's a binocular video a very long way. So. Totally. Yeah. 
What do you feel like is an opinion you once held strongly, but now you no longer agree with it? I think I used to think of RL research as being very algorithmically driven. I thought that this breakthrough in AI would come from building better RL algorithms to solve whatever problems we have. But I think as the more that I'm working with this, it seems to be all the like engineering side of the things, basically. I don't think the algorithms that we're using have changed much in like five years or something. Okay. We're still pretty much using the same algorithms. But we've come a long way in like figuring out how to train the algorithms, like the training recipes, basically. Mm-hmm. And how do we design architectures for this? And how do we collect data and so on? And how do we train on external data sets? How do we build a representation and everything for our RL algorithms? So I think that's where my, my research is moving towards. Like, what are the tricks that are necessary to take existing algorithms and keep solving more difficult problems? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you think that our current algorithms will get us all the way there? Like, all the way to more general purpose agents? Well, it's, it's hard to say, I think. There's a lot of the components there. I think there are already people have shown that are provably efficient or close to that in terms of just learning a task from a reward signal. Okay. But going beyond that, I think there's a lot of other components that humans are using that at least model VRL doesn't have, like doing planning, doing switching between different hierarchies of decisions. Like sometimes you want to be very fine-grained. Sometimes we just want to move in a general direction and that's really good enough. And I think memory is also something that's lacking a lot in RL. Mm-hmm. It's basically, I think most algorithms, they don't even have any recurrency. It's just like a input. It's like a single image or like a stack of, of a few mm-hmm. images. And basically everything before that, you just forget. Yeah, it's true. I see. So you think there is some room for algorithmic improvement to add things like planning, hierarchical decision-making and memory and things like that. Yeah, I think those components are important, but I think they, you cannot add those to current algorithms alone and, and expect that to work. I think yeah. a lot of it comes from maybe we don't have the right benchmarks either to actually really test that and verify that. Mm-hmm. So I think that's one thing, like how do we build the benchmarks? How do we build the simulators or real world environments to test this kind of algorithm? And also from a data perspective, like how much data do we need? Like where do we get the data from and so on? And I think there's a lot of like these things that seem small or trivial, but actually matter a lot in inducing this kind of research. Mm-hmm. And if you were to build the right benchmarks for being able to actually show that planning or hierarchical decision-making or memory is useful, like what kind of tasks would you, or like what kind of things would you want? One thing is probably benchmarks that are more long horizon than a lot of yeah. what we've been seeing right now. If you're limiting your benchmark to picking up a blog and putting it on a shelf, it's pretty large, like shoulder right? And it's pretty limited in scope. And we seem to have algorithms that can do that pretty reasonably. But how do we actually go from that to have an algorithm that can be given an instruction like with language or some other instruction and actually be able to carry out this whole plan that it has in its head and solve like use this complex manipulation? Okay. Something that yet humans can easily do. We can if we get an instruction, we can remember what we want to do and we can like sort of think of a plan and execute it and usually it goes well and I don't think we have that component in RL. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. It's something we're working on, though. We'll release to the community, probably. Do you have like timelines for when computers will have more general intelligence, like average human-level performance on every task? Yeah, it seems like there's at least some tasks that computers are doing very well already. Mm-hmm. So I think we're already close to that or even past that. I think a long time ago now, we've passed the benchmark for, I don't know what human skill level in Atari games, for example. <laughs> That seems like a yeah, solve problem. Even on Atari, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> and we have that in a lot of other problems as well. I think 
in recognition, for example, I think we've already surpassed humans. And I think in language, we're also getting pretty close to a believable level in language generation. Mm-hmm. I think I think I would push back on that a little bit in the in language and in recognition in particular. I think on ImageNet, if you give me a thing of a dog, I don't know whether a dog breed looks like a dog, kind of. <laughs> but I think if we think about recognition as the like what we mean, or like when you're thinking about like making your robots walk around the world, there it does feel like humans are still sort of a much better, more robust, like better generalization. <laughs> like maybe on a particular data set, we sort of lose out because we're not exploiting these like very fine grained details. But I think in general, if I had to pick to have the, you know, a person doing image recognition or a machine for a random task, I think I might come with the person still. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I think it's like very narrow skill yeah. that we're seeing, we're seeing machine learning being very successful. And mm-hmm. it seems like pretty far still from being something that we can do open-ended classification, for example, and it would yeah. be consistently better than humans. Yeah. So I think there's a gap there, but there are like, there are some sub problems where it's working very well. Mm-hmm. And I think we'll continue to see this kind of improvements. I don't think we'll see like a general algorithm that can solve all of the problems in the near future. If you were to predict kind of like a general algorithm for all digital problems versus like, you know, let's separate robotics because there are, I think, sensor problems and all sorts of problems in robotics. But what about for all digital algorithms? Would you have a timeline for that? Well, it depends on the definition, I guess. Yeah. Is, mm-hmm. There's a lot of applications where I think that are very, very tricky. But I think in general... Can humans do them? If humans, can, if one human can be trained to do all of them, then we will count it in the set. <laughs> yeah, I guess I guess some humans might be superhuman and can do a lot of things <laughs> <laughs> that I would never learn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like speed running video games. <laughs> I don't know how to do that one. That's fair. That's fair. I think this is actually yeah. an interesting thing when people talk about general intelligence. Like humans are actually not that general. We do become specialized. We're general enough. We have general architecture that is able to become specialized. But then once we become specialized, it actually does take a lot of training time to become specialized in something totally different. So. Right, right. Yeah. And it's, I think that's one thing that like humans are very specialized in our occupation. There's also just like very small things that we're learning as a kid. And then it doesn't change much for our life. But if we were to put a human that has learned like one specific way of life, you put it somewhere else completely, it would probably also fail in a lot of cases. Yeah, there's actually a really good example for explorers in the 15th century who went to the Arctic and they all died. Even though the people who lived in the Arctic, the Inuits, like lived there totally fine. And it turns out that there's like a lot of cultural knowledge that you need to live in the Arctic. Like one type of moss is usable for burning flesh and stuff. So we're not that good at generalization, one shot generalization. I don't know, individually. I think now collectively, like, you know, now you have to look up like, oh, how do I survive in the Arctic? Don't go in there. Bring a coat. Bring some food. <laughs> okay, I think I might be okay. <laughs> no, no, but I think that's actually kind of interesting, which is like collectively over generations, we build up these processes and representations yeah. that allow us to be able to generalize to new tasks that otherwise we wouldn't be able to generalize to. Yeah. So it's kind I of guess I'm making the point that it's a larger, like a lot of intelligence actually is this larger collective body of knowledge as well. It's not just like us figuring everything out from scratch. Yeah, definitely true. Yeah, I've definitely heard that also in like in the animal world, that's also the case that parent squirrels or elephants or whatever, they would teach their kids also like how to survive on their own. And that's probably also why a lot of knowledge is passed in, in animals as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What do you feel like are some overlooked papers or underrated techniques, like in general in the field? 
I'm very much in the generalization camp. I think there's a lot of interesting research in generalization in computer vision that is very applicable to the kind of problems that we're dealing with in RL. Mm. And I feel that sometimes if you do research, people often get very siloed into like, like the very specific subproblem they have. Mm-hmm. And I feel like maybe as a research community, we need to be better at also reading papers from other fields. And mm-hmm. it's very difficult. People have limited time and you probably don't know where to look, but probably I think that would be healthy as a community that we don't. There's a lot of existing tools that we could use in our research that we don't simply because we don't know about them. Mm-hmm. So basically like steal more tools from computer vision. Yes, or find more collaborators outside your own field. There's <laughs> another way to phrase this. Right. <laughs> that makes sense. What do you think makes a great researcher great? I guess, speaking of that. Yeah, I think collaborating is important. And just talking to other people that are doing other things. I am still kind of junior, but that seems at least to be how I'm getting ideas a lot. Is I have an idea, I talk to other people, figure out, is this a reasonable idea? Is something that people have done before? Maybe people have done it 10 years ago, and I don't even need to think about it more. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Totally. I think also just in general, questioning what people have been doing for a long time. Like there are some, if there's a specific way of doing something in whether it's RL or machine learning or something completely different, if there's an established way of doing things and everybody just learns to do it that way, there's nobody questioning why are we doing this way? There's probably other ways to solve the same problem. Mm-hmm. And I think if people don't investigate and just take it for granted, I think there's a lot of innovations that are not happening because of that. Do you feel like you've seen a very successful example of someone questioning something? I think it happens a lot in machine learning. There's research that provides like negative results, for example, is not really appreciated in conferences. Yeah. General research that are sort of not the mainstream research topics, proposing something completely different, mm-hmm. might not be appreciated right now when it's sort of proposed, but then years later, people discover that hey, this is actually a good way to solve this problem that we have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The ML community is very focused on these benchmarks, which I think is good in some sense because a lot of the progress that we had has come from benchmarks. Mm-hmm. But it's also we're also hurting a little bit in that there's a lot of things that like if you don't be the state of the art on this benchmark, you're not being considered for like the mainstream research community. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Totally. We've definitely seen that with friends submitting papers that are very unusual to conferences, but they don't end up getting reviewers that necessarily appreciate the approach. Which is sad. I mean, I think also, I've also been on the other side multiple times as a reviewer and you get a paper and sometimes it's just very difficult to judge. Is this something that a community would be interested in or not? And you're sort of, you're the judge of that and it's it's very difficult because you don't want to be the judge of basically of like denying people doing research in a different direction. Yeah, that's totally true. Just because you don't see the value, it's very difficult. (laughs) Really true. Do you feel like there are any mistakes that you've made as a researcher or on the flip side, any tips or tricks that you've learned that you feel like would be helpful for someone just starting their PhD? When I got started, I was very focused on the algorithmic aspect again. And like, I have this cool tool that I came up with. How can I put it to use? Like, which kind of problem can I apply this to? And if you're proposing a hammer and you're trying to find a nail somewhere, (laughs) that might not be the best way to do research. I feel I had learned that doing it the other way around and like, finding a very interesting problem that people would care about, but also people have not, there's not 10, 20 papers on on this topic already. That seems to be a good place to start. Mm, Start with problems, not with hammers. Yeah, because like once you have the problem, it's very easy usually to find a solution. And I think that's a lot of my papers have come out that way. It's like, this is the problem. It is an interesting problem. 
what is the simplest solution that we can think of and then see whether that works well or not. And it turns out that very often it does. Mm -hmm. Totally. Yeah. What are you optimistic about for the future? I like this general idea or philosophy that AI will be useful for like everyday citizens. And I think we're already starting to see AI being commercialized in a lot of industries for very specific problems. But I'm hoping that also AI is something that everyday citizens can use and get the benefit from. Yeah, mm -hmm. I agree. Are there specific applications that you're imagining along those lines as an everyday citizen ourselves or as yourself? You know? <laughs> <laughs> I think there's a lot of things behind the scenes that we don't see necessarily, like something like recycling, for example. Like right now, it's it's mostly human driven. Mm. I could think a lot of that. Like there's it's very physical, it's labor intensive and it's very mm -hmm. physical. So I think there's a lot of that kind of jobs that could be not replaced by robots, but at least they could not take the same physical toll on the workers that are working in those fields. Mm -hmm. yeah. I think th those are things that are kind of invisible. There's also, of course, a lot of more visible applications of AI, like cleaning robots or like cooking robots or all kinds of different robots that are more like service-based, providing a, a service for people or removing like a daily chore that people have. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I definitely agree. I feel like there are a lot of things that are limited by intelligence right now, literally intelligence resource that it doesn't make sense to pursue recycling because it's not that cost-effective for a lot of places. But if you had more intelligence resource to be able to sort things, to be able to see what should be recycled and what shouldn't, to figure out how to recycle certain materials, then suddenly it starts to become cost-effective and now you can do recycling. So I definitely agree. Like, these are very exciting areas. Yeah, and there are some... Like a lot of it is like removing that physical labor for people. But there's also some applications that are outright dangerous for people to do mm -hmm. and, and deal with chemicals and stuff like that. And it, mm -hmm. in those cases, you can replace it with robots and the human would just be controlling the robot or like instructing the robot what to do. So the human would be removed from those chemicals or heavy machinery or whatever that might be dangerous to people. Yeah. On the flip side, are there any risks that you see for more powerful AI? Yeah, I think there's a lot of risks that probably, I guess, as a research, you don't have a lot of power over it. But there's a lot of risk, I think, to society. And it's very hard, I think, where AI is right now to sort of envision what the future will look like when AI is everywhere. Yeah. It's something that definitely we need researchers to do that kind of work. I could see potentially a lot of risks in who other governing people of these AI models. Mm -hmm. Is it governments? Is it military? Is it corporations or is it something that people will get power off uh, individually mm -hmm. and i mm -hmm. think the ml community has done a lot of work in and computer science in general has been very open source with a lot of technologies mm -hmm. so hopefully that is also the future that we will keep being open source and share the technologies yeah an interesting story about democratization of computing where some people think that because it originated in California, where there was a whole movement around in the 60s, the counterculture is like anti-industrialization, anti-authoritarian movement that combined with the culture of computing led to like this idea of the personal computer of empowerment of individuals. And like that was not the default path. We had mainframes in the 50s, and that would have been the default path, mainframes owned by big banks and by governments. And I think there's a similar crossroads for AI where you can end up with totalitarian governments. It really does enable totalitarianism much better. But if you approach it with this idea of empowerment, like maybe you end up with very different products. I totally agree with that, that there's this question, like it's hard to tell exactly how it's going to play out. And there's this question of who is it going to empower really? 
Yeah, I think that's an interesting story. And I think it just exemplifies that we as researchers, we need to be careful about which kind of research we're doing and when is a particular research problem, probably the, something that we should do or like should stay away from. Mm-hmm. I think it's interesting to keep that in mind and important to keep that in mind. But also we do not have a lot of power as individuals. So we want to really want to make sure that we're not enabling other people to do harm. Yeah, it's true. I think you're giving an example is an interesting example because in the past it was mainframes. And then for a while it was like individual and personal computer, like a PC, right? But now this phone, like I don't have root access to this phone, right? Like it's not like it's all the data is on by somewhere else. It's all on different servers. This is a cloud computing. It really is just another name for like centralization and mainframes and things again, right? It sort of moved like back in that direction. There was this like movement to the individual side, but I think to what Nicholas was just saying, like we have to be careful what we work on and how we think about this because we can, maybe not individually, but collectively as a community, kind of bias these technologies one way or another, right? And I think there was a big push for like individual power and freedom of that comes with computing. And there were a lot of individuals, I think, that kind of pushed things in this direction. And it wasn't just yeah. like a technical thing that happened that way. The technical default is for it all to be in the same spot. It's annoying to send people like it hardware and have it all be maintained somewhere else. Like it's just not as cost effective to have thick clients. But it was that way for a while. You can imagine AI kind of going in either of these different directions, and we do have a lot of influence over it, actually. Yeah, I think a, a really interesting lesson in the history of computing is just that individuals do have a lot of influence. Like, people talk about Stuart Brand, who brought all of these different people from different cultures together in order to get them to exchange ideas with each other. He brought high-profile defense people, or people who worked in the government on these mainframes, or like people at DARPA with some of these counterculture hippies and got this like idea mixing together. And there is something really important about what is the culture that's driving the technology and like actually you can do a lot to influence that culture. Yeah, and I think we're seeing a lot of the same right now in ML. That's, I think maybe even though a lot of the models are open source, at least the code for training the models, maybe the models that are actually trained are not available or even if that is, maybe the data is not available. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that trend doesn't seem to be going away. And it's I think the models are getting to a point where individual people just not feasibly can train these models. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Something we believe a lot in is an individual academic PhD student or PI should be able to train every model, should be able to experiment on every model, like should have the access to resources that allows them, like empowers them to be able to study the systems that we're building. Yeah, or at least if not na- able to do it individually, then maybe a collective of PhD students can do it. And that seems to, I've seen some people like communities trying to do that with like these yeah. distributed training of ML models. Yeah. I think that that is a great initiative. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's definitely yeah I'm, I'm, I'm really hoping that we can see, I think that's still more in language and computer vision communities where they have this kind of scale in, in terms of model and in terms of data. But if there were something similar in, in robot learning and NRL in general, that we could collectively collect a bunch of different data from different labs with all the robots doing different tasks and mm-hmm. that sort of collectively train these big foundation models in robot learning, that would be very useful. Mm That would be great. Yeah. Yeah. It almost argues for like a open source robotic platform that we've sort of standardized on as a ML community. Like, well, let's just all use this robot. We can all get these. We'll just, we'll only make this robot work well. Well, Don't worry about the rest of them. That way we can share results, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like we have a lot of those tools from like a hardware perspective and from a software perspective, like we have ROS and all these other systems that are providing this high level API and, but that doesn't solve that problem of actually training ML models and using ML models and that component is still missing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. That's true. Interesting. 
Speaking of like access to the community or like more collective intelligence, are there any research ideas that you'd want to donate to the community? Well, I think I've already marketed my policy research a little bit. Well. <laughs> <laughs> I think that is something I would, <laughs> I would like to see. But aside from that, I think there is a lot of still intuition missing in RL. Like when are RL algorithms, when you train it, when is it supposed to be successful? Like when can you expect it to be successful? And when would it fail? I think more systematic categorization of this and like which kind of properties are actually necessary to get generalization also from a algorithmic perspective, not just data. Mm -hmm. I don't think there's a lot of research in, for example, generalization and reward-based models and pixel-based models. Like what are the actual algorithmic properties that make or break an algorithm when it comes to generalization mm -hmm. or adaptation or other scenarios that you might want to use policies? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It might be hard to understand like the, what's actually learning, what the networks is learning. Mm -hmm. But at least I think at a higher level, when we just try to probe these models, I think that could probably give us a lot of insights in what are the direction that we should go in as a field, like which was algorithmic components or like data components or are important and which ones are less important for actually getting this stuff to work. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. So like more scientific study of exactly in what situations these models work versus don't work. There's one very interesting survey that I would like to advertise. There's an interesting survey by Robert Kirk, I think, wow. from one year ago yeah. on generalization in RL. And he's giving a good summary of what people have been doing in generalization RL. But I think he's doing a very good job at categorizing what actually people mean when they say generalization RL. Okay. This is a very loaded term, and there are so many different ways that you can study generalization. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something as researchers, we're not always clear about when we propose a new algorithm. Like when is this actually supposed to help and when is this not useful mm -hmm. in generalization or doesn't have to be generalization, just any kind of problem that we want to use our algorithm for. Like when can we expect it to fail? When can we expect it to be successful? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I actually, I love this paper. I love the survey and we cited it in our paper. He basically defines the three environments, a singleton environment where train and test are equal to each other and IID generalization environment where the train and test distributions are equal to each other. And then OOD generalization environment where train and test distributions are different from each other and kind of like classifies different generalization tasks into one of these three categories. And I really liked how they did it. I, I thought it was super helpful. What did you yeah. like you got from it? I think it's just more being more aware as a researcher. How do we articulate that we do generalization and in which specific problem settings are we talking about? Because mm -hmm. mm -hmm. doing the kind of data augmentation work that I've been doing clearly improves generalization and mission, it's probably very limited what that would do in terms of like changes in the dynamics, for example, or the problem itself. Mm. And I think as a community, we just need to be very clear about when we say generalization, what is it that we mean? Mm -hmm. And yeah, just be very explicit with like, what are the limitations of our method? I think that would save collectively as a community a lot of time. But of course, that is, you never want to put all the limitations of your method in the paper. That's... <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a huge fault of, you yes, know. Yes, it is. Right? Yeah. I think you that's part of the bad incentives of, of the review system. And that yeah. we want to make every new paper is sort of the holy grail of RL and it's solving all of our problems. And there's no limitations. <laughs> right, 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 right. But then it turns out that after the review and everything, and maybe there are some limitations. And I think we just need to do a better job of articulating those limitations. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I liked how earlier you said the policy adaptation algorithm has a limitation where it does experience catastrophic forgetting. And like, that's a problem that is not solved by it. And I think it's important to know that 
Another thing I think that is very often glossed over in especially RL is the wall time of training things. Yes. It's, it's such a trivial thing and it doesn't really, I mean, you can just get more computers. It, it's not a problem, I think, to, per se, to say that. Like if you use 10 hours or 20 hours, it doesn't really matter in terms of like the method and the, and the contributions. Yes. But if you're actually a PhD student and you want to build on top of another algorithm, it's very important if things train in like 10 hours or seven days. It's 100%. Yeah, when we were running our baselines for this benchmark, just like observing the wall time differences, we were like, oh my God. <laughs> you know, some of these algorithms are 10x slower than others. So, yeah. 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 For a lot of the community, like if you're an industry, for example, you have access to huge clusters, it, it's not a big deal. But for a lot of other people in the community, it, it really matters a lot. And I think just being very explicit about that, I think, would be very helpful. Yeah, I really agree. Yeah, I really appreciated that your papers had charts for all time and comparison of the different algorithms. Like, oh yeah, this is, you know, quite a bit slower than if you weren't doing prediction. That makes sense. Okay, good. Now I can see that you're making this trade-off. Good. Yes. Yeah, I mean, that, that's really what everything is. I think everything is a trade-off in research. And when you're developing new method, there's probably some things that you're solving and some things that you're like adding in wall time or algorithmic mm-hmm. complexity or a number of lines of code or whatever. Mm-hmm. I completely agree. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciated it. I think this policy reuse idea is quite interesting and it definitely is underexplored. So I hope other people hear this and then they end up exploring it. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It has been a great pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Generally Intelligent Podcast. If you like this, please consider giving us a rating and leaving a review on Apple Podcast. On Twitter, I'm at Kenjun, K-A-N-J-U-N. And our lab is at Gen Intelligent. Until next time, 